What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is responsible for guiding the design of all North American projects for the Canopy, Tempo, and Motto brands at Hilton. He's an innovative industry leader. He has a fabulous eye for interior design. He is the Senior Director of Lifestyle at Hilton Worldwide, ladies and gentlemen, Barry Sullivan. Welcome, Barry. Thank you very much, Dan. It's nice to be with you. It's so good to be you, uh, to be with you, yeah, to be you. Oh, if I could be you, Barry. <laughs> it's yeah, so wonderful. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> well, one of the things that I like to do at the beginning of these conversations um, with people that I have a, a longer kind of more securitous personal relationship with is kind of give a little background there. And I think I first met you, it must have been in 1999 or 2000, I was working for Steve Higgins. You were working with Mark Norcross, helping do uh, on, the, on the design coordination with uh, Mark David Furniture, correct? I don't remember exactly. I, what think, I think we met with Steve, weren't you? Didn't you come to Jim Northcutt's office? I that could was, have come to. I think that's the, well, that's the first time I remember meeting Steve. And I think that might have been you might have I think I I a, think I could have been with him but you know what's funny is everyone remembers the first time they met Steve Higgins may he rest yeah. in peace but he uh he he's a really special um influence in my life and I think for the industry as a whole but that was a, a very brief encounter but the real magical part of it and I think it ties into the larger conversation that we'll have about hospitality is I lived in this magical place uh it, under the hollywood sign in beachwood canyon on um on beachwood avenue and uh, my wife and i lived there with our dog herbie and it was this magical kind of compound where apparently linda ronstadt recorded an album in one of the rooms of 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 of, of the apartment we lived in there was just like this really great energy i think harry dean stanton had his name carved into the sidewalk out front but Kevin the, Bacon lived there for a while. Oh, did I didn't even know that. So wait, I can be connected to Kevin Bacon by one step now? No, he can be connected to you now. <laughs> yeah, great. Oh, thank you for flipping that one. Uh, it's all about perspective. Yeah. But the reason why, so the, there was this just, it was just a very magical place. And I think a lot of it had to do with the woman that owned the compound. Her name is Ida Hallinan. And I don't know for any, all the people out there that ever read or saw uh, Amistad Maupin's uh, Tales of the City. I think it was Tales of the City. Yep, that's right. Um, there was this one character, Mrs. Madrigal, who was like the kind of glue that bound everyone together in her building that she rented right. to, out to like really like just wayward souls and just a whole bunch of different people. And she was kind of the thread that pulled them all together. And I see Ida was very much like that and probably and still is and yeah. she actually grew up there i think she lived there from when she was five years old and onward um but a couple of years after we moved out i think I, alexa and i had moved to new york city and then she reached out to me she's like oh my gosh dan i think you really need to meet someone who used to live here 
and he's just the most wonderful man. And I think he's working at a big hotel company. I don't remember what it's called. His name is Barry Sullivan. And I said, oh my God, I think I know him. <laughs> but the, I guess the, the amazing thing is, is we both lived in this incredible magical compound at two very different times. But I feel like in some way, Ida has connected us as the Mrs. Madrigal. Yeah. And I don't know. And I think that's why we have kind of such a, an affinity for each other and, and such like a, a deeper connection in, in what we do and why yeah, we, well, do what we it, do. It took you past the, uh, the job description of just being a rep. We had something in common to talk about and, and shared experiences living in, in California and that part of Hollywood, which was, uh, which was, and I'm sure is still pretty special, even though it's changed over the time. So yeah, that's, that's where you, you, you jump from, from, purely business to business and uh, and personal. Personal with magic, because again, I think Ida is like this magical human. And yeah. now I feel so terrible for not having reached out to her for, for a couple of years. And now I'm going to do that as soon as we hang up. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like it's we. so much of it, what we do is like why we're drawn to it. And I think a lot of what draws me to all these conversations and even just the work that my, in my vocation of providing furniture to hotels. Um, it's not about the furniture or the, the industry that we're in. It's almost as if it's a vehicle for me to make others feel cared for and taken care of. And I think I could apply that to anything. It just happens to be that this is the vehicle. But if you were to think about your experience living at 2595 North Beachwood Avenue, um, no secrets now. Everybody knows where it is, right? I know. It's very secret. You can go find Harry, Deaton, Harry, Harry yeah. Dean Stanton's name in the sidewalk yeah. out front. But like if you were to go back there, you know, and think about Ida and as magical as she is, like how did, did that in any way influence your journey to where you are now? Um, well, what was interesting about my time there, because it was a summer after I had left Los Angeles and moved to North Carolina, had the opportunity to go back and work for Wimberley for a summer, uh, freelancing for them. And that's where I ended up staying. Um, and so it, it was not only a full circle of going to school in LA, working there for a long time, leaving, going to North Carolina, and then coming back that, um, that really made that so important. And then that part of, that part of Hollywood was so interesting. Um, and it was, it's almost a city within a city kind of thing um, because it's, it's remote, but in underneath the Hollywood signs. So it's, everybody knows where it is. They don't always know how to get there. Um, but um, so I think for me, and then when I stayed there, I stayed in, I think three or four different apartments because I was there for so long, I had to keep moving around. So I got a sense of of, of different locales. And it was a really interesting uh, experience to have over a long period of time because it was, it's, it's a quiet little enclave in, the, in a big, huge city. So I'm not sure if I answered your question or not, but- um, it, Well, it, in a, okay, so in a way you did, <laughs> because let's pull on this thread. I had, I went to USC, I lived in LA, after I moved up to San Francisco, then came back to LA, lived in West Hollywood with Alexa. And then we were looking for a new place to live. I think they were going to, they sold the build the house we were renting and 
I think they tore it down and built condos. But then we were looking and she found this place. She's always searching, but she found this place in Beechwood Canyon. And having lived in LA for six or seven years at that point, I'd actually never even heard of it. It was like this little special moment, yeah. um, topographically, energy, sun, every, I mean, there's a horse stable all the way at the top of it, which is just crazy to me. I started running there. Um, it was just a very uh, pivotal place in my life. So it just, I don't know, it just, I just feel very drawn to it and drawn to other peoples that, that find the magic. Yeah. In well, that. it's, it was, it's also a very lifestyle neighborhood within a, within a big city. And so we could, we could pull on that thread if you want, but yes, uh, that, that whole, that whole neighborhood up there from its inception um, to the, to the entree of Hollywood land before the, the land fell off the sign and the housing development up there. But I think the people that lived with Ida were indicative of what, who of everybody who lived in that, that neighborhood. And so from a lifestyle um, perspective, they were people that had some things in common, but they were, they were the, the non-typical people of the time. They were musicians, they were artists, they were um, performers, whatever there is. There's a couple of theaters down on Hollywood that people could walk to. And so it really, it really developed as a, as, as many of the neighborhoods in LA did as a, as a, a community and a lifestyle community, but because of its uh, geography with only one street in and, and the, everything that you can get to from there, it, it really was a little enclave. Um, it and that's was. What, and that's what I appreciated about it, that it was, it was, it was a, a little town in a big city. It absolutely was. And, <laughs> and there was even just up the road from us, I don't know, 200 yards, there was a little teeny market, which was yeah. amazing, a little diner. And I think like, and, and then I, I just, you know, and running up to the top of the hill to start running up in those fire trails and full of coyotes and everything, I'd always just see regular people and a ton of celebrities driving down. Yeah. Um, it was like a really magical place. And I think from a lifestyle perspective, which is, I'm glad you're pulling on that thread. Um, it does have everything kind of contained in there in this very unique spot, but it's not, but it, it has people from all different walks of life mm -hmm. around it. So yeah. I think that is pretty amazing. And then to think about that as a lifestyle influence for you going one step further from lifestyle and, and now all the work that you're doing at Hilton, how do you think that that helps shape what your definition of hospitality is? Well, it certainly helped uh, define the definition of lifestyle because when I started with Hilton and um, the, the Canopy, which was the first lifestyle brand was introduced, my first question is, well, what does lifestyle mean? Um, um, what does it mean to the brand? And so I think the, the reference point of, of living in LA and, and having that experience in Beechwood, but West Hollywood, whatever it is, there's there's so much um, nuance to living in LA that is specific to a neighborhood. And the thing I hear from people who go there and have never been there before is like, well, it's just one big city and there's, how do you understand what's going on or, or anything about it? But you you know, as well as I do, when you live there for a while, you know where one end, one neighborhood starts and, and another one stops. 
even though it might be along the same street, but you know that there's some divisions and, and you recognize that after being there for a long time that, okay, this, this, this part of Sunset Boulevard has a, its, own, um, its own qualities. And, and as soon as you pass X Street, it turns into another set of qualities. So I think the recognizing that even in a big city like LA, there are people who gravitate to certain aspects of, of life that are important to them that resonates with it, whether it's Beachwood, whether it's the beach and living in Santa Monica or um, any of the beach communities, people end up there because they feel comfortable. And, and we talked about it a little bit earlier about that's what hospitality is, is making people feel comfortable uh, or, or my definition is making them feel comfortable, welcome, and warm in an environment that's not their own. Um, and I think pulling those um, pulling those those aspects out of where you live and looking for it where you go and travel to is is I think what a lot of us do when we go to a new city is I got to find a good coffee shop or where can I go to good pastry? Things that you do at home, you want to find, um, not necessarily find the same thing, but um, the version of that in whatever city you'd be happening to, to, to visit. And so I, I, think, I think pulling those nuances out of, of what, what makes lifestyle uh, important to a specific traveler is, is really important. I always said that LA is a really difficult, I think I may even said horrible place to visit, but it's a tremendously incredible and vibrant place to live because there are so many pockets and topographies and mountains and oceans and skiing and, and, you know, just there's everything and just all the history of Hollywood. And I don't know, it, it, it's a really incredible place to live. And I love that you bring up Canopy because I did want to get there. And Canopy being the first lifestyle brand that Hilton has done, it also, you know, it started to launch and kind of get some momentum before the pandemic. But really in, in earnest, I remember the glimmer of hope for me that, that our industry was all going to be okay was the velocity at which I don't know how many canopies opened during the pandemic, but it was just, it just, it helped me to kind of keep calm, carry on because there were so many that just happened and it, and they've been, I think from everything I've been reading, they've been outperforming in a, in an, in an amazing way. Yeah, they have. So we have, we have about 33 hotels uh, worldwide, uh, 26 of them are in the States. Um, and when Gary Steffen was the head of the brand uh, up until uh, a year or two ago, his big mantra in 2019 was 20 canopies in 2020. That was our thing, 20 and 20. Um, and of course, that did happen, um, but it happened virtually and remotely. Um, I didn't visit one of those 20 hotels that we opened in 20. So it was, it was a little bit bittersweet because we... I started with the company in January 15 um, when we had two hotels in the pipeline. Um, and, and so the, the work that, that four or five years of work or whatever it took to get those hotels to a point of opening, it was, it was very saddening to, to not be able to go to those. Mm -hmm. um, and not only, not only not be able to go, but also to figure out 
how do you do a model room and how do you do a hotel opening, which we normally go and walk through and two weeks before they're opening, you're, you know, you're kicking the tires and looking under the hood of everything. And to not be able to do that um, was disappointing, but it also, it made us quickly try and figure out how we can do this because hotels, they, they needed to open. Um, it, it was just a part of what uh, the normal process. At that point, um, a lot of lenders said, no, if the hotel is open, if the hotel is done, you got to open. Um, not every hotel had the, the ability to say, well, we're going to wait another three months until we think the market is better. Some lenders really said, nope, you got to be open. So we had to quickly figure out how to do that um, with something that we were always used to doing in person. So, And have you heard from other people that just the rapidity by which canopies were opening, that it also helped reassure them that everything was going to be okay? Or am I kind of a, a freakish alone opinion in that? No, I think so. I think um, it it was the, you know, it was the buildup. I think up until then in 19, we might've had four or five hotels open, but the, the, the major, the majority of what we had been working on that represented um, before they opened the bandwidth of what the, what the brand represented and, and how different um, a, a hotel in Grand Rapids could be from a hotel in Boston, but they could still be part of the same brand. That was the, that would, what we had been working on so hard to have a common thread that represented a level of service and a level of design and a level of localization and, and being hyper uh, hyper neighborhood, um, it when all of that existed on paper, there was it. It took the right developer to say, "Yeah, I, th I think that's a good idea. I, I want to be a part of that." Uh, because when you don't have, you can't go and walk somebody through an existing hotel and say, "Well, this is what we're going to build, and you can do it how you want as long as you keep these key pillars." We didn't have that availability because we had we had a, only a few hotels, and um, as I said, it was the, the brand existed mostly on paper. So twenty was was really a, a, a watershed event because it really just threw so many hotels into the pipeline, opened in the pipeline that people finally understood. And if you go to our website now and look at the variety of designs and new construction versus adaptive reuse and, and the variety of hotels that came out of the, the, the last uh, seven, eight years, it's, it's for me is, is pretty startling and, and amazing. It's been uh, immensely uh, fun to be a part of that, um, that whole process. Um, and especially at Hilton, when we weren't, we weren't necessarily duplicating something that already existed. We were really yeah. venturing into new territory. Well, that's actually really surprising to me. And again, as a hospitality, I find myself rather than more of an expert, although I'm an expert in what I do, I find myself to be more a fan of our industry. So I might not know all of the details, but I know the good, I know the good stuff when I see it. But I'm also really surprised. I didn't realize that that was Hilton's first independent brand. Well, I don't, I don't mean independent brand, but it was, I mean uh, lifestyle. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was, uh, and yeah. I didn't realize. Um, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize it was Hilton's first lifestyle brand. It was, and wow. then shortly after that, um, the lifestyle collections brand. So it was followed, I think, in 
17 or 18. Uh, we launched in 15, 14, late 14, early 15. I think it was in 17 or 18. We launched Curio, which mm-hmm. was a collection brand, but still lifestyle. And then a few years after that, it was uh, Tapestry, which was also a lifestyle brand, but those were collections and they were soft brands. And it was a different um, path to market than Canopy was, which was a hard brand. Um, and so, so that was the big distinction because we had more we had more guardrails around what the brand wanted to be, with still with lots of flexibility within that. But um, it did have a set uh, a pretty set um, list of parameters that were were the objectives for the for the new build and for the. And then just to clarify for the listeners that don't know, a soft brand. And again, please correct me because I'll probably misspeak here. But a soft brand is a hotel that could kind of be whatever it wants to be, but then would operationally and through reservations and uh, training team, all that kind of other infrastructure that people might not experience or understand, that would all fall under the flag of one of the larger brands. And then you would have a soft brand. that. So it's kind of like a lot more flexible. And then with the lifestyle brand of Curio, it's a hard brand, even though it is lifestyle. And some people, and it's interesting because even though it's lifestyle and it's a hard brand, which means the brand of one of Hilton has a lot of say in what it is, it still kind of bridges the gap between this soft brand and a, a really hard flag brand because it just also seems like everyone is unique to the place where it is. So it's, it's, I'm I'm just trying to envision a like a Venn diagram of like boutique lifestyle and independent and it kind of and I guess you throw brand in there and I guess that's that rarefied real estate where Canopy probably lives right I don't I don't know very many that have checked all those boxes with such kind of focus yeah um, well the the the, the soft brands or the collection brands do have much more uh, flexibility in what they can be. And we're mm-hmm. a little less stringent on every aspect of the guest room. It's, it's more about that the hotel's name and presence in whatever city they are takes, takes, um, takes precedence over Hilton. So if you go to a, a Curio or a Tapestry, you won't, the, the, the association to that soft brand is very light and you could walk in the front door and wouldn't even know that you were in a Hilton property until you get to the front desk and it says Hilton Honors. That's Mm -hmm. the extent of it. There's not much on the outside of the building. Um, That association lives mostly online. Um, Their online presence is um, they find it because they come to book our hotels and they're an honors member or whatever it happens to be. And that's the benefit to the, to the owners is that they, they can maintain that, that alleged or, or perceived autonomy, um, but then they have the, the benefit of, of hooking on to our engine and getting reservations, but they can still maintain um, um, the, the appearance that they really are a, a single branded unique hotel within an environment. Not that, not, a, not that it's downplayed, but it, it's, it's for those hotels. And originally the, the um, collection brands were for hotels that might be a single property and a and a well known the Del Coronado and for instance in San Diego mm. is a curio. 
it's still the Del Coronado. You, it, we didn't, it didn't change to Curio Del Coronado, and the the, the affiliation with with Curio is very, um, uh, it's two or three times removed um, when you come on property, but you still know it as the Del Coronado, whereas our canopies are all known by, they all have canopy, the name on on the hotel. So I'm also curious as far as this being. Hilton's first lifestyle brand, hard brand that is lifestyle. Um, you have so many road warriors and raving fans. Each each flag, whether it's Marriott, Hilton, Intercon, like you have these people that are kind of bound by the frequent uh, traveler rewards program or mm-hmm. or whatever that is. And but they they just they're unwavering. Those raving fans, like mm-hmm. I'm a Hilton guy. This is what I want, and I will stay only at Hilton's for whatever reason. But you know they're in there. I'm curious, what kind of feedback are you getting from those kind of? I'm probably using the wrong words, but the the raving Hilton fans who experience a canopy for the first time. Um, it depends on on how familiar they are with the brand. Of course, anytime. Um, something new comes out within a within a company, whether it's an airline that's got a new route going somewhere, or it's a, a somebody like Hilton that we've opened a new hotel. Um, the the nuances of of why someone may want to stay at a Canopy versus a Curio versus a Hilton or a DoubleTree um, are sometimes um, they don't they don't go seven levers deep and and learn a lot about the brand. Most times it's about the location. So that that's usually the primary driving factor. I will say that um, one of our, our Hilton, uh, the canopy in Portland, Oregon opened. And um, one of our, our big initiatives was to do away with water bottles. So as a Hilton Honors member, you check in, you get two bottles of water. Well, part of the uh, sustainability efforts and things are, our efforts was to put a, a water, um, filtered water and ice dispenser on every floor and put a carafe a, a bottle in the room that you would then go and fill up. This was even before people traveled with water bottles as, as much as they do now. I, I did hear from the general manager there, the, 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 a couple checked in and they were, they wanted their water bottles. And they, when they checked in, they said, I'm sorry, we don't have them. Um, we have filtered water on the floor. And, and they weren't irate, but it was that um, they were a little bit taken aback that here I am at a Hilton and I, I'm not, they didn't understand why some of the nuances of what canopy represented and why, and, and um, why it was important to the people that we identify that were going to resonate with this lifestyle brand. I mean, lifestyle, you can have as, as many different definitions of it as you talk to people. And that's why we've then um, um, launched Motto and Tempo. They are also lifestyle brands, but they, um, from our standpoint, we're catering to a different audience. Um, and those brands are geared to that. So on the rare occasion that somebody might, um, somebody who's used to a Hilton or a Doubletree 
checks into a motto or, or they may not necessarily be expecting it. So um, we, we sometimes have to do some um, education on property or we, we do our best in our marketing things is to really be clear about um, who are, are who our intended audiences. It's not mm. to say that it can't be to anybody, but um, because lifestyle um, at a canopy or a temple or motto, it's about your your frame of mind. You can you can be seventy years old and stay at a motto if you're in that mindset. It's the same thing with uh, with any of our brands. If as long as you resonate with um, what the brand represents, it's not an age thing. And I think initially when Lifestyle was launched, it said, oh, well, you're going after millennials. Well, no, uh, they're not the only people that would stay at our hotel. And um, um, Gary Steffen um, famously joked when he was the head of the brand, he said, well, I'm a 50 year old millennial. I, this is the kind of hotel I wanna stay at. And I may not be in the age group, but I'm in the mindset. And, and so there, therein lied um, a lot of where our work had to be done. Oh, I love that. And I love that. I love what Gary said there because I feel like I'm a 46-year-old millennial. My only caveat to that is in most of the rooms that are designed for the millennial traveler, there's not a really great work surface because everyone wants to like work from bed or work on a little window seat or something like that. So that's the one caveat I that for me personally that might make me a little less than a hundred percent millennial. I, I think that that pendulum has swung <laughs> both ways on on that subject. There was, yeah, I, I think part of what you what you identified is that oh yeah, millennials they don't work at a desk, and and so some some people took desks completely out, and then you get people who say, well, where's my desk? So uh, the pendulum has kind of swung back. We never we never really went that far as far as um, um, stripping things out. Um, Motto, which is a very small compact room, does not have a desk, but it has a work surface so that if you choose not to work in bed and you want to pull up to at least some sort of work surface, it's not, it's not a 20 inch depth desk, but it's, it's a work surface so that um, there's, we try and, and accommodate as many different attitudes to traveling and routines as we possibly can. I love that. Yeah, and I don't mean necessarily mean that I need a desk, but a work surface yeah. that is not cocktail height because I'd like to, right. I just like my posture is bad enough that I don't need to be hunched over a little cocktail table yeah. working in a lobby somewhere. Just give me something that's a little bit higher, but that's just me. Yeah. We digress. So um, on your journey to where you are right now um, at Hilton, where did you find your passion and love for hotels so um i didn't realize you went to usc so did i so see this oh, is this is we just learned something about each other so how long have we known each other and we didn't we didn't even connect <laughs> that dot oh my god i had no idea so um yeah i went to usc got a degree in architecture um uh, but the architecture school at that time was going through a lot of reworking and it it ended up not being a great educational experience. I mean, I, I learned a lot, but the department was trying to figure out what it wanted to be and how it wanted to, to um, teach. So when I so graduated- Let me pause you there for just one second, because I started off as architecture there. 
but then I was also on the rowing team. And then I, after a couple of all nighters in the, in the architectural studio, and then I'd have to get up at four 30 to go pull on Oak oars. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't do both. So I wound up switching out of that, but that's how I came back to, to design because I kind of regretted switching to literature because I was rowing and not staying into architecture. So that's, that's kind of how I found my way yeah. back, but I didn't know we were both Trojans fight on. Uh, yeah, now yeah. we're in the, now we're in the big 10. Oh, now we can, now you and I will be able to really kind of pester Larry Traxler on Ohio state now, because we'll, he's a big Ohio state fan. And now we're definitely, we're going to be playing them at least once every year. So I, I do see some. Okay. Nice I'll let you do that ribbing. for me seeing that I report to him. I don't really want to, I don't want to really get on his bad side. So I'll let you, I'll let you do the football side for, for me. All right. And, and I'll energetically support you, but I'll, I'll let you, Perfect. I'll let you dive in the deep end. Perfect. I'll just say it from Barry and I, yeah. no, I'm just kidding. I'll yeah. take you out of it. So, uh, so anyways, guys aside, yeah, yeah. keep, go, so keep when going. So when I graduated, when I graduated, the idea of working in an architecture firm was was pretty unappealing. Um, so I did something else for a couple of years and then got back into it and worked for um, 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 what was then um, Sue Firestone's um, smaller company called Design One. Yeah. Um, and at that time. They were just in the early stages of starting to do hotel, but a lot of it was retirement homes and and um, senior living and things. And I worked there for about a year, and then an opportunity came up at uh, James Northcutt Associates, um, which um, people may recognize the name, um, maybe not. But um, Jim was probably the most influential um, person in my design career at that time, because I, it was then that I realized there was a way to connect architecture with interiors. Up until then, it, um, it always felt like interiors was decorating. And I didn't understand how um, thoughtful and how important someone who did interior architecture was to a project and and not just the architecture, but um, the selection of materials and and all of that, all of the backgrounds into into which the um, uh, furniture and all of those other things go into. And um, I, I can mention several of Jim's projects that if you go to today, that even though they've been open for 30, maybe 40 years, the architectural backgrounds have not been changed. Um, it's the furnishings that have gone in to keep the projects current uh, from a design standpoint. Um, but so the and an understanding the scale of those things and proportions and how you move through space devoid of of any of the furnishings. It's just the the built environment. That's where I really. Um, understood how those two things could come together as a profession, as opposed to being two separate um, entities. Um, and wow. so that was that was really was eye opening for me. Um, worked on a lot of great projects. I did have the opportunity um, because of of Jim's work at the um, in Beverly Hills. We ended up uh, doing a um, a palace in Saudi Arabia for a very young um, princess, uh, prince and princess. And um, 
at that time, most of, of the work being done in Saudi Arabia for people in, in the royal family was lots of gold, lots of, of um, reproductions of French and, and English antiques and the fussier the better. Well, she was 29 years old and didn't want any of that and really resonated with a different, um, a different uh, um, aesthetic. And we took over that project um, while it was under construction. And most of the things we did early on, well, because it was still under construction, was changing door width, door heights, moldings, because as you look down these long corridors, uh, no offense to architects, but there, 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 there wasn't, they hadn't taken it to the next level to understand that your, your, your view down the corridor gets all um, interrupted and arches aren't uh, at the same spring point and all of these, these small things that um, we concentrated on that time really came full center um, and really understood that um, it's, it's more than just where the four walls are and what is what you're standing on, but how all of those aspects come together in a in a kind of uh, cohesive design. And when you were when you took over that uh, palace project midstream, were you allowed to make tremendous architectural changes up to that point? Yeah, they were. Um, she was really quite astute as a as a as a very young um, client. She really understood um, what we were trying to do, and I I walked on site and would mark with chalk. Oh, you've, I need a I need an electrical outlet here, or I need a J box for response. And I come back the next day, and they had chipped out. So this was a concrete building that was built. And wow. they would just chip it out. They were the client really wanted it done um, correctly, so it was it was easy to do, and it was not um, it was not at all cumbersome to the project, um, which is probably rare in in a lot of cases. And and but it also spoke to why you look at all of those things ahead of time and you put them in the drawings, which is what Jim um, always did. Is that they're always part of that? Is everything was detailed and measured, and and all of those references were already put in. Um, this was just an opportunity to, to try and correct things that were, um, had, had been designed around a different, um, a different direction. And now we were trying to, to kind of unify it and clean up things. Wow, so working for Jim, just open your eyes to all of the, the possibilities and the importance of what the interiors are. And then how did you, how, how did your evolution from, from experiencing Jim and his vision kind of evolve to where so, you are now? So at, at, at that point, I do, I do want to give credit um, because um, the design director at Jim's office when I started was Daryl Schmidt. Um, and so I worked, um, so Daryl worked closely with Jim and I worked closely with Daryl. There was, there was uh, um and so there, there was that great working relationship and, and Daryl was unique in the same way that those were all, that's, that's part of why um, he was hired and uh, hired, Jim hired him because he had the same sensibility and architectural background, but also really well versed in, in design. So, um, so I learned a lot of that um, from Jim through Daryl. And then um, when Jim passed away, 
and we were our offices were combined with uh, Trish Wilson's, and then Daryl um, left after a few years and went off on his own, and I worked with him there. Um, so it was it was it was that um, that approach design that was so important to me and that that I really got so much out of. And and Daryl was um, very much of this. I don't want to say they were they were Jim and Daryl were the same, but they they had different perspectives that that reached the same goal. And and um, I really learned an enormous amount from Daryl also. And I think what was good about both of those experiences, they were also small offices. I have this unofficial theory that um, private practice is successful up until about um, somewhere between 12 and 18 employees. And then if you're if it's your company and um, and you get to a certain size, then if design is your passion, you're no longer doing design, you're worried about where, where is, where's the next project coming from? You've got HR stuff, you've got all these other things that, that are about running a business. And sometimes that, um, that kind of sidetracks um, the intimacy that you have, uh, that an owner or anybody has with the, the principal um, because they can focus on them. And so, um, that's why um, that was part of the reason also because I've known Daryl for so long that I went to work with him when he started um, um, started his own company. Um, and then we ended up, um, and that also was an opportunity to work with some of the clients that had been Jim's prior that had gone away uh, during the merger and then had had resurfaced. So, um, mm -hmm. but even the, the experience with Tricia when, um, when the two companies were merged, she was really, really good friends with Jim. And that's why that, that whole partnership came about when Jim passed away. Um, and it was, that was my big, I would say that that's probably the closest I came to working for a company like Hilton that, that's so big. Um, when the two offices, when the Wilson office merged with the Northcutt office, I think we had, um, I don't know, we had upwards of 60 people um, almost wow. overnight. Um, and we moved into Wilson's office and there was people drafting in the corridors and stuff. It was just, we, it was so, um, and both offices had so much work going on, but that was an opportunity to really experience a design kind of uh, pedal to the metal with projects in Las Vegas and in China and in Europe. There were just so many of them. It, it was, it was an eye-opening experience. Um, and, and after that merger happened, did you interact with Trisha a lot or a little, or how, did you guys mm -hmm. cross paths? She would, um, no, it was uh, more of an autonomous, um, she would come to town occasionally. And it's funny, some of the people that I worked with at um, Wilson, I'm now working with that other, Margaret McMahon was there at the time. So now I'm, I'm with her at Wimberley when we're working on projects. So it um, that was nice about it also because it introduced me to so many people that have now gone in different directions, but I still remain connected to. Um, so um, anyway, it was it was a really great experience. So I saw Tricia occasionally. Um, um, she would, you know, a couple of times a year or whatever would come, and she was really delightful. I really loved uh, meeting her, and she was I mean, so she's nice. So ins she's so inspiring, and just yeah. kind of what she built, and 
and just the amount of people that she's impacted in this like uh, kind of diaspora of everyone that kind of came up under her and went on to do all these other yeah. great things, you included. Um, the list is uh, immense. It's just unreal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just a huge fan. I've only met her a couple of times, but I, I, I'd love to have her on at some point. Um, going back to the 12 to 18 magic number for a, a design firm before it like you kind of have to scale and the organization just yeah. changes. It's interesting you say that because um, I not I won't name names, but I was re recently sp speaking to a friend slash client who has a design firm, and um, they're like, "Yeah, we don't want to get more than twelve people," and I'm like, "Twelve? Wow, that's a very specific number." And he he didn't really say exactly like why, but I'm sure it's about all of that stuff. It's and and it reminds me of a book I once read called what is it called? Little Giants, where there's so many businesses and um, there's so many businesses that just make the decision to stay small so that, you know, and th this one book that goes into like just Annie DeFranco, the, you know, the recording artist, she's mm -hmm. from Buffalo. She just wanted to keep her recording studio and her, her um, production company super small and in Buffalo. And so they use that as a case study. There's a countless other ones, but it's interesting how so many of just like I call them the business porn books where it's about like grow and scale and this and that where it's really how do you really find that balance of being able to be that special 12 to 18 person I don't know like incubator to just something that's so much more massive and I guess you know hey whatever path anyone chooses it's all good but I, I feel like there's so much pressure on everyone in business to kind of just scale and get huge yeah. where I think it's, it's reassuring to hear that, you know, that 12 to 18 number. And I, I think that that, I think a lot of people listening to this will, I, I know it will make them think differently as they're on their uh, entrepreneurial career path. So thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. But um, right. any, did you want to say something else? No, there? no, that's, that's, uh, yeah, I was going to say that I think it it depends on how passionate you are about your business and how much of of that passion you need to maintain during that. So if if it is being an artist or or whatever it is, and and it's um, and you're a designer and you want to remain involved enough in those projects to be able to direct and guide and and understand where a project is going, versus um, we just need to bring in more business and, and there'll be a general overview by somebody in the company to make sure that things are kind of going in the right direction. It, it really depends on what kind of ownership and involvement and how much involvement you want through the project. And of course, in a business like ours, building a hotel, you know, it, you're, you're looking at, you're signing up for three or four years to be mm -hmm. with something. And so it. Um, it's a long-term investment, and um, I don't. I don't think people that I've worked for and, and when I've done stuff, I don't want to get to the point where um, I start something and then somebody else finishes it, and and you're only in um, bits and pieces. The involvement from start to finish, and I think that's what's been unique for me at, at Canopy is that because they were up until recently all new builds. Um, they are a start to finish. And so you're dealing with the owner when they sign their agreement 
on day one, and then all of the drawings and submittals and, and meetings that have to go through to get a set of, of construction drawings. And then during the construction process, that whole thing is you're you're marrying somebody for um, for for four or five years, or if not longer. That's if everything runs on schedule. The things like the pandemic, we had projects um, that came to a screeching halt, and now they're restarting. So, what was a three-year project is already a, a five-year project because we've lost the last two years. So, mm. um, it's that I find really rewarding is to do to have that start to finish. And I'm sure that's where most of the people listening to this are are where their heart lies also is to start with, for lack of a better word, a blank piece of paper, um, you get a new project, uh, you have to learn about the city, you have to learn about the owners, you have to learn about all of the nuances that go into it. And then you're creating something specific for that project and everything that leads up to all of the things that have to um, happen before the front door is open, that's what I find is, is really rewarding. Um, and so um, I've been fortunate in that step that, we're, that we haven't done, um, well, well, I shouldn't say that, where I'm just getting to the point now where some of our hotels are old enough that we'll be doing renovations, but um, to have that experience of a start to finish project is, is really quite unique and really, um, really challenging, but it's also um, really fun for me. Yeah, um, I think to, be, to being able to see the full cycle from start to finish, it's very rewarding. And typically, unless something really weird happens, you're always working with the same team. Um, and that continuity is very important. I wanted to also just you know, create some boundaries on like the small to big, right? So you have these smaller companies out there, right? That they do a fine job. So then they scale. Everything is, you know, it could be, it could be great. It could, might not be great. You sometimes some of the magic changes, but I wanted to flip that back into your, your Hilton experience, because I keep reading like every year Hilton gets ranked as one of the best places to work consistently. And Hilton has just been growing and growing and growing since they went public. Like, what do you think that that, what do you think that magic is that helps that happen? Cause I know it's not, it's not just they get a stamp. A lot of work goes into that and it's all verified. Like from your experience, what makes it such a great place to work and how, what makes it great and how does it achieve that on a, on a continuous basis? Well, I think like in anything, it has to start at the top. And um, Chris Nassetta, aside from being a very personable, easy person to talk with, um, he is, is always engaged with, um, with team members. Um, and when I was in the office up until the pandemic, um, I happened to be on the same floor with him. You know, he would wander through to the different departments on the 11th floor, just say hi to people. I mean, it was, it was, it never started out as a is what I would consider a corporate office or what I thought a corporate office would, would be. So that was initially my first, um, I think during the onboarding of the first day you go there, Hilton is a first name company. You call people by their first name. There's no Mr. Nacetta or things like that if you're, if you're working there. So that permeates down through. Um, and so it, it does feel like a family and it feels um, that there's a lot of concern about um, making people feel 
warm, welcome, and 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 uh, and comfortable in their in their in their non-home environment. It's it's really the, the the definition of hospitality. So that is our mantra, and and of course um, Conrad uh, Hilton's objectives 105 years ago of filling the the world with the warmth and light of hospitality is is where that started, and and um, I've having worked at other companies, I recognize all of the all of the things that Hilton does to make work life and and, and life outside of work as, as nice as possible. I've, I've there's some of us, some of the older folks at, at Hilton who have worked other places um, that we we often um, often talk about how people who come in for internships and then get jobs here, get a, uh, get a job at Hilton and they go somewhere else. And we often hear, God, I didn't know how good it was when I, until I left, you go somewhere else and you don't realize that um, that, that environment is, is, is not something that happens organically. It, it really has to, there has to be a thought behind it. Um, and I, I really do believe that that's what um, higher ups at Hilton are always concentrating on is what can we do to make um, people enjoy working here. Um, there was um, it, it it costs um, and and this I don't I'm not saying that this is the reason they do it, but it certainly does figure into it. There's an enormous amount of investment that any company makes when somebody comes on board. Um, to get them up to speed, to get them into a, a productive work environment. And when somebody likes that leaves and you have to start all over, not only is there that, that gap of time where that curve you have to rebuild up, but there's a monetary thing to it as well. It was a great story um, that I was at an owner's conference a couple of years ago when it was in Dallas. And they were talking about the team member areas, which are normally... Uh, well, not normally, but in many cases are in the basement of the building, cinder block walls, linoleum floors, um, really cheap tables and chairs. And um, they had a very high turnover rate at this particular hotel, which was a Hilton. And they figured out that by doing, by making the the break room nicer, putting some art in there, having thoughtful furniture that looks good together. There's a color scheme that they 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 um, reduced their turnover rate by thirty percent, and they also wow. calculated that the cost for retraining somebody was about twenty five thousand dollars, even if it was just a housekeeper. Um, so it, there's there's a lot of value in that, and um, I I don't know that. Um, I don't know if other companies think that it's just a bottom line thing. Well, we've got to give a free lunch on Friday, or we've got to do something like this, and that it's cost. It's it's not a cost. It's an investment in um, it's an investment in your employees, and I think it's a large reason why at least the people on my team and the people that I um, I interact with on other teams, brand teams, on the model team, on the tempo team everybody's just really nice to be with. Um, everybody um, appears to be happy in their job. They seem to appreciate it. 
um, and they really just want to be there. And, and as I said, having worked a lot of other places, I, I am co continually reminded of, of what a good job Hilton does about always thinking of ways to, to make employees' lives better. And I do get the feeling, just not just from what you're saying also, but just things that I read and just other anecdotes and conversations with people, that it really does come from the top down. And um, I don't. I, I think I've met Chris, I don't know, once or twice, but it was just a handshake. I've never really spoken to him. But again, all the things that you're saying, it, it's just like, again, top down, it's infectious. Um, it's an invest, it, it, it is an investment. And also I'm curious, you know, when you were describing that break room, I can't tell, I've been in hundreds of hotels and looked at the, and you know, you go to the break room when you're in the back of house. And I can't tell you the vast majority of them are just terrible. And like, if you're treating your teammates this way, how can you expect them to treat guests a different way? And actually that made me think, was Hilton the one, the first one to coin instead of, or switch the term or the nomenclature instead of back of house, it became heart of house? Well, we, um, it could be our initiative to address the team member break rooms was called the heart of the heart of house initiative. And it was about assembling making it easy for owners to say, okay, here's three color schemes that you can pick from. Here's three furniture packages. Um, here's how to paint the corridors. Here's how to change lighting. And so, um, I don't, I don't know if, I'm not going to claim it, but I, I know it is our initiative. It is called the Heart of House, and it might have been. I, I feel like I, I, I'll verify this after we're out, but like I really feel like, yeah, I think Hilton was the first one that I heard refer to it, and then I do. I didn't know the details of the initiative, but it's not just words or bluster or, or a poster. It's yeah. I, everything from all the people I know and love that work at Hilton, and I do get the same feeling, and it. And again, that goes right to culture. And if you get the yeah. culture right, you know, all the accolades come along with it and the investment in the people. So yeah. th thank you for sharing that part. We, we, we took it a, a step further in lifestyle. So um, when, so in Canopy, we don't have team members, we have enthusiasts, we don't have employees. So we, um, oh, we, uh, so the, the general manager is the chief enthusiast. And, and so, um, so when part of the part of the brand descriptive was that in the the team member break room, which was called the enthusiast retreat or um, affectionately the ER. Which we, oh my God, I love this! I didn't know that. Oh my God, keep going. So we so we told uh, we wrote into the standards that the owners needed to uh, reference whatever front of house design was happening in the back of house, so that. The team members, when they were having their meal, they were in an environment that was similar to what the guests were experiencing for that very reason, that there's not this big disconnect when you go through to go to your locker room, that you, our, our approach was that they should still feel like they are in the front of house and that they're immersed in the environment that guests are in, immersed in, even when they're not on duty. Um, and that now has bled over to motto and tempo as well. It's it's not a big investment in money, um, but it is a huge investment in in human resources. And mm -hmm. I, I think the response from all of the hotels has been really positive. Um, of course, 
unless they've worked somewhere else, they don't have anything to compare it to. But um, it's really, it's not that big of a deal to put an area rug in somewhere, put in nice art, um, upgrade the seating a little bit, put in some decent lighting. Um, there's no reason why you can't have wall covering or nice paint. It, and it's not the two by four fluorescent lighting in a, in a cinder block wall room. Um, and I think it's been very successful for, for Canopy and all of our brands. And I think that was what also with the objectives of the Heart of House, the Heart of House was a way to um, retrofit existing, existing hotels that were already open and trading to have a, an easy button way for an owner to apply this to the back of house. Again, we're always, we were always working with new builds, so it was easy to put these things in from the get-go. Um, but that was, that's always been the approach on lifestyle is that there should be a, a seamless experience for the, the team members, whether they're on duty or not. It is amazing if you think about design where oftentimes many people see design as a, there's a massive barrier to entry or a huge cost to it. But really, you know, going back to how you defined it, it's just about, you know, being intentional and making people feel warm and comfortable. And you know what? Sometimes it's lighting paint in a rug and it doesn't have to cost an arm or a leg. But the people uh -huh. who are entering that environment or the, the heart of that house or the heart of any house or the hearth of anything, you know, they pick up on it. They feel that that yeah. effort is being made. Yeah, whether whether or not they consciously recognize it, but you certainly recognize it when you, if you go beyond a door and it's a, it's a stark, completely different environment um, versus one that you just feel like you've just gone to a different part of the hotel that guests can't go to. Um, so I, I it's, it's a, I think it's a really positive investment that speaks to the way that Hilton thinks about all employees, whether they're in the corporate office or they're on, on property. Mm. Um, as we start, you know, we've looked back on everything on like your journey and where you've come and, and, you know, all the great initiatives and to be a part of the growth of Hilton and also Canopy and the other lifestyle brands. Um, as you're kind of taking today, looking forward, what's exciting you most about the future right now from your perspective? So it's kind of interesting. Canopy, we have one more hotel to open this year, which is Toronto, which is going to be spectacular. It's really a beautiful, beautiful property. Um, that's, that is the last hotel that's in the current, I'm not, I'm not going to say pipeline, but it was in the, in the existing pipeline before the last two years happened. We're about mm -hmm. to start um, several new projects. So there's a bit of a gap. So the canopy focus now, if you go to the website and look at the development problem, it's all happening in Europe and, and Africa until we start to ramp back up. My big excitement now is, is, is doing the similar thing for Tempo, which was launched in um, early 20 um, and bringing that whole lifestyle brand in that's geared to a different audience um, using lessons learned that we did on Canopy, not necessarily specific ones about things, but just the approach to launching a brand. Um, and I think that that for me, um, for launching um, Canopy, then Motto, and now Tempo, and the, the pipeline for Tempo is is really remarkable it's it's um we'll have we'll have our first one open um in your neighborhood 
um, early next year or mid next year. And then um, we have two more that are going, that uh, Nashville is under construction. Um, Del Mar is just about ready to start construction. Louisville has started construction. So there's wow. that, that gap of the last two years where Canopy finished and now um, Tempo is kind of stepping in to take that place. And then um, the, the domestic canopies will start to pick up again um, in another, uh, we'll, we'll start to have more focus on those. But right now, I think we've got upwards of 30 projects that we are or will be working on. Um, and, and many of them were ones that went on on, on hold that are now um, resurfacing, but there's a, there's a lot of interest in tempo. And so it's, it's really exciting to um, ride that wave, which is slightly different than, than Canopy, but as I said, borrowing from a lot of the lessons we learned in, in how to launch a brand, but um, Tempo is really decided, uh, de designed towards a different audience and a different mindset of travelers, like we talked about with um, what defines lifestyle. Well, what, what is, um, who are you, who, who's your customer? Mm -hmm. And when, when we, when launching a new brand, um, people spend a lot of time digging into, all right, well, what, what kind of traveler are we trying to, is this a young business person or are these young vacationers? And so there's a lot of effort that was, was spent by lots of different um, consultants to really define um, who we're designing for, what kind of, how much do they make, what, what brands are important to them, the fitness is really important to them, um, uh, health, healthy eating, healthy living is important. How can we help those people that have um, are dedicated to lots of aspects of the, their life that are important to them that are not work related. How do we help them maintain that um, while they're traveling? Um, and so that's been very interesting to 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 see the all of the work that went in to define that. And then okay, now we know who we're defining for. What are we going to design and and, and give them? And how much flexibility do we need to maintain in it while uh, while maintaining a thread of consistency between each property so that um, when you check into a tempo in California, you're able to have the same experience um, from service and, and accommodations, but we, your room shouldn't, your hotel nor your room should look the same as it did. It, New York City shouldn't look like Los Angeles. There are two right. different, so it's building, building that into it, but also... Um, building a, a, a doing it in an economical way that that owners um, that can that that respond to what the owners have to spend and, and where we're we're putting these hotels um, it's been proven time and time again that if a company large or small can create a well thought out brand and then they have a brand it drives so much value for all of the stakeholders and branding is like a, I mean, I'm just awestruck every time I see a new brand come out that has legs and goes. Um, what do you think the biggest lesson learned in launching one brand and then bringing it over to another um, impacted you the most? Like if, I don't know, if you, if you could say, oh, this is what I really learned in launching a brand and this is what I'm going to bring carrying forward. Well, when I started with Canopy, I didn't have anything to compare it to. So we were designing around 
a certain a certain traveler, business traveler, a vacation traveler, and decidedly because of where um, uh, of the of the where the hotel was going to be priced, they were geared towards an, an audience that had X amount of money to spend on this, whether or not they were there for business uh, pleasure or whatever it happened to be. So, um, and that, and, and Canopy obviously sits higher on our brand stack than, than Tempo does. So taking those same sensibilities and demographics and the, uh, the definers of that demographic and building things into those, into Tempo that are done in a different way than we're done for Canopy because we're, um, uh, the travelers that we're um, courting in Tempo are very health conscious. So um, we've aligned with um, Bluestone Lane. So they're, they're doing our, um, they're partnering us for F&B. We've got a great fitness center. We've put some equipment in fitness centers. It's not just treadmills anymore. We've got um, uh, different kinds of, of uh, workout equipment. We're of course got Peloton, Theragun, um, other things that are much more um, that are wellness focused above and beyond what you'd normally see in a in a quote unquote fitness center, which are usually ellipticals, treadmills, and and a stretching area. So, again, seeing that identifying that aspect of of importance for the guests is wellness. They want to be able to um, work out in a similar way than they do at home and not necessarily having to go to the gym down the street or yes. Oh yeah. There's a gold gym. Um, it's 10 minutes away. You can catch an Uber. That's not what we're, we're trying to do. And so um, filtered water on every floor, again, trying to reduce the usage with water bottles, doing bulk amenities in the showers and things, things that are important, sustainability things, things that, um, that um, provide a good night's sleep, that give them a place to work. We not only have uh, a dry vanity, but we also have a work desk in the, in the living good. room for you. So you'll be very, very happy. Sold. Uh, yeah. Um, um, you know, focusing on the shower. So we've, we've done some things in reimagining the of a standard guest room that are, um, that are geared towards how this particular travel traveler um, travels and wants to wants their day to go. So, um, so we've done it. So that, so launching two different brands that have a different customer and then motto was um, it has, it has kind of a blending of sensibilities between canopy and, and tempo, but their, their big focus is that they are smaller rooms. So um, we've made a very, very efficient um, room. We've done four different types of rooms that connect um, so that um, Mono's focus is really being in the very best location in a city. Um, so uh, Mono Chelsea just opened um, earlier this year um, and we have one at Times Square that's in the works also. So it's, um, they're, they're in great locations and it's, it's about having a comfortable room, but not necessarily having a big room because um, those travelers are more interested in going out and seeing the city. They want to be in a good location and the, the room is, it's not secondary, but the, the size is less important. And, and because we have different types of rooms that all connect, 
and now you can can book those connecting rooms online. So we have a room that um, that has a Murphy bed, so it can be your entertainment area. In the Murphy bed can be up, and you can have that connect to two rooms on either side where there's a queen bed or there's bunk beds. So it allows families or uh, groups that want to come to uh, want to travel together to have this um, kind of cooperative space that they can use um, when they are in the rooms, but then it's in a great location and it's got great coffee and, and um, uh, nice things to eat, but it's about the location. Um, and then if you think about at, at Hilton in particular, or actually any large company, but let's just think about Hilton in launching a new brand, where do you find out who, like from where, from, from where within Hilton does this demographic or psychographic or target customer or target guest come from? Um, there are people much smarter than me <laughs> higher <laughs> up that, that are um, evaluating our brands, our demographics, and they're, they're really always looking for a white space in our own uh, enterprise. Mm. So um, there's um, a new brand that you'll see coming out um, a, a, a one, probably two focused service brands coming out in the future because we've identified internally within our own company that there's an um, underserviced uh, market segment. And so awesome. we'll pivot to the, And I will say that is the one thing that, that Kristen said has always been um, pretty passionate about is that he's always said, it's better for us to grow these brands on our own um, versus, uh, buying another brand, um, mm. and, and, um, and trying to integrate it because if it's not a good fit, then you can spend a lot of time trying to fix somebody else's problems and you can inherit stuff that you may, may not know. So it's always been, um, his, I think his, his approach is let's just grow them ourselves. And so there's a little bit longer, lead up to that because it does take the research of, all right, well, who are we designing for? What it, and what do the owners want out of this? What do the customers want out of this? How are we gonna marry those two? And how are we going to do it in a way that is different than the brands that surround it? So we, 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 um, we don't ever wanna cannibalize our own. There's no, there's no growth in pulling a customer from Hilton Garden in over to Hampton or whatever it is, if you're moving them within it, if you're going to build something new, it's got, you've got to, the, or the objective is, is to attract new customers to Hilton that then become, as you noted, a loyal Hilton um, uh, customer that as your um, travel needs and your budget change, you have a place to go within our brand stack and you can slowly move up and move into different categories you suddenly have a family and you want to do extended stay and a home with suites is more uh, is, is uh, better for you than a Hampton Inn or something. So we're, we're trying to not be all things for all people, but to offer, um, offer brands that are specific in their, uh, their customer demographic. Yeah, earlier, I forgot exactly what we were talking about. You mentioned that something that excited you was it's like a clean sheet of paper. I wrote down tabula rasa, yeah. like a clean slate. And then to hear 
the people that are smarter than all of us up there identifying where this new white space is that then we can kind of build. And I've always found in everything I do, whenever I feel fully in control of like what's going on around me and everything is where it needs to be. And I have that clean white space or the clean, um, it could be something as simple as an inbox or a huge clean whiteboard. It's like the ultimate creativity to really build something and, mm-hmm. and get to that brand. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that. And what's also interesting is when those brands then want to go elsewhere in the world, everything that everything that we build usually starts in, in North America. And mm-hmm. then, okay, well, if, it, if it's going to, to go to Central America and Cala, what is what are the what are the cultural norms that would we need to we may need to address in a different way to make that brand as applicable in lifestyle there and same thing with china or europe or africa there's always some you have to be aware of um, and because we're in all over the world we're already aware of those things but things that would resonate with you or i here may not in Mexico City. And so, but there's a core element of it that would work in Mexico City, but yeah. it's the it's the, the the tweaking to make sure that it it's appropriate and as on brand for that particular country as it can be. I love it. I mean it all sounds so exciting and the growth and the vision and just I don't know, just being such a great place to work. I'm really yeah. excited to see where you're going. So now I have a I have a question where we'll go back in time to your Uh-oh. get you're getting in uh, your, your first getting your desk at uh, the University of Southern California in the School of Architecture. I can't remember the name of the building anymore. Harris Hall. Harris Hall. There we go. So you're checking into getting into Harris Hall. You're you're there. You're getting your drafting table and your your brush and your slot, your rulers and your straight edges, everything all together. But then you, the Barry I'm talking to right now, teleports back to your the younger version of yourself. What advice do you have for yourself? Stick it out. <laughs> it will get better. It will get better. <laughs> you, you talk. You, um, yeah, that's a, it's a great analogy. It's almost like you're you're reaching back in time with your hand to uh, either give a pat on the back or or say you know. You know those those long nights you mentioned. You know long long nights until four a.m. drafting or whatever it is. And I didn't have to get up at four thirty to go rowing, but well, you had to get up that early because there's no water nearby, so you had to go to the beach somewhere. So you had a you had a. No, we, 40, we went down to the L.A. Harbor, where where all of the uh, all those container ships are all backed up, and where they come and get offloaded. We would row next to those things. It was disgusting. I saw dead bodies. The water was gross. It was. Uh, <laughs> It was gnarly, but we'd have to get up early to go down to San Pedro. Yeah. So I think, I think that's what I've realized is, um, you know, when you're in the midst of it, you, you can be pretty myopic about, oh, it's this, and this is horrible and I'm late and I don't see how this is going to work out. And I've got another final on some other day, but you know, my other mantra is that things always work out even when you don't think they are. And sometimes it, it takes not weeks or days, but it takes years for it to, to work out. But, you know, if, if I hadn't gone through all of the things that I had, the good and what I thought was bad at the time, I wouldn't be here. I think all of those things lead us to where we are. Um, and they, they um, form our opinions, they form our personality, they, 
um, give us insights on on how to work with people and how to get through things. So, you know, there's there's no bad experiences. They're just experiences that that you think are bad at the time, but you 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 can always pull something from them later in life. And if if they were a part of the dots that bring you to where I am, then I can't be I can't be upset with them or or push them away because they were all part of what it took to get here. So, um, and some in some small part of that, let's bring it all right back to Ida Hallinan, <laughs> and Mrs. Madrigal, and Mrs. Madrigal, and um, Beachwood Canyon. So. Yeah. Um, Barry, how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Um, it's, uh, it's it's a very, very highly secretive um, email address. It's barry.sullivan at Hilton. Um, mm -hmm. So they're, I'm welcome to, to uh, take any emails from anybody. Uh, Great. And then uh, we'll also put your link in there. And then I think I'll put the some information of Hilton up there in the liner notes as well so they can find okay. out what's going on that way as well. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So um, we'll put it all in there. If anybody's reaching out to me on LinkedIn, please let reference this because I get lots of invites from all over the world that from people that I don't know. So if it if if it's specific about this conversation, if they can um, throw that connect that dot in it, that would be helpful because it'll it'll it might be the difference between accepting or not. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Barry, I. Just want to say thank you so much. I'm grateful for our time together. And this has just been a, a wonderfully enjoyable um, and educational conversation for me. So thank you. Thank you. And for me too. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everyone says. Oh, not, it's so not, on, great. not on your part, on my part. I was just, uh, <laughs> just yeah. and, and you and I know the, the little bit of, of logistics we went through before this all started. So yeah. Um, um, anyway, I'm happy to help. It's always nice to see you and I'll look forward to seeing you in person before too long. Perfect. Yeah, I should be down there pretty soon. And also, uh, most importantly, well, not necessarily most importantly, but very much importantly, thanking our listeners, because this is just all growing by uh, word of mouth. So if this conversation has evolved your idea on what hospitality is and how the built environment can help convey hospitality to others, um, please pass it along to a friend. We're growing every single week and it's really exciting and it's all not possible without you. So thank you everyone. And we will see you next time. Thanks very much, Dan.